Well, it's like birthing an elephant, you know, painful and it takes a long time to kind of first grow the elephant and then get it out there. But once you are through and on the other side, I think we'll really have something that kind of makes the community stand out. Welcome to episode 453 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Bell Ryder, Orono Maine Assistant Manager and President of the nonprofit OTO Fiber Corporation. The towns of Orono and nearby Old Town began their search for better broadband more than 10 years ago and have overcome an array of challenges in bringing a pilot project to justify future-proof connectivity to the surrounding area. Bell shares the origins of local efforts in the two communities plagued by finding themselves stuck just over the wrong side of just about every line. They were too small to entice private ISPs to commit to upgrading local infrastructure or investing in new construction that would bring fast connectivity to the region, but too small to finance a citywide network themselves. In looking for funding help, they found that existing options were considered too fast to qualify them for many funding opportunities to improve the technology in the ground, but residents were acutely aware that their broadband options were too slow to do more than the bare minimum to get online. Christopher and Bell go through the process of issuing multiple RFPs, working through a challenge by local cable providers, which saw one grant win taken away, and OTO Fiber's eventual success in showing that not only did households and businesses want better service, but they were willing to pay for it. And together with allies, local officials came up with a plan for financial stability and success. OTO Fiber's story is a testament to local resilience and resourcefulness in the face of obstacles and the value of never giving up. Now here's Christopher talking with Bell. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with Bell Ryder, the Assistant Town Manager for the Town of Orono and the President of OTO Fiber from the great state of Maine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Maine is uh, it's one of our favorite states at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Um, um, you know, our, our, our fear, one of our fearless leaders grew up in, in Portland, moved back there. And, um, and Maine is just a, it's a very special state. So I'm always excited when we can talk to anyone from Maine. And you were one of the original municipal fiber broadband projects in Maine, if I remember correctly. Uh, we're going to go through that some today. Uh, but, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, Orono, um, its claim to fame with um, uh, perhaps the university system and, uh, and what people, you know, might see if they came to town. Sure. So Orono is a um, relatively big community for the state of Maine, but um in terms of everywhere else, we're pretty tiny. Uh, we've got about 11,000 um, residents in Orono, probably about half and half students and um, year-round residents. We are a great community for people who love the outdoors. We've got two rivers, lots of trail systems, um, and of course, the beautiful flagship campus of the University of Maine uh, system. We pride ourselves on having one of the most diverse, walkable communities. And at the same time, we really want to make sure that um, we make it a place that people want to stay after they have done their education at the university. To support that, um, we have been trying to get ultra high-speed broadband into the community for 
more than a decade. Yes. Um, and actually, I want to come back to ultra high speed because I like that. I like that designation. Um, not going to settle for just high speed. And we'll talk about that. But uh, first, you know, for people to have a sense of, of where you are right now, uh, you are the president of OTO Fiber, which is, um, I think there's some excitement happening right now. And uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening. Yeah. So OTO Fiber is a um... It is a what's called a municipal nonprofit corporation. It's a 501c3, um, and its members are the town of Orono, the city of Old Town, which is our neighboring community, and the University of Maine system, which is kind of the parent of the University of Maine, the university that's in our um, community. We have deployed six miles of um, fiber, kind of designed to be backbone, but also last mile fiber within the community. And um, this is on a pilot basis. And we are getting ready to um, hopefully sign a contract soon within the next month to light up that um, pilot project. This is our proof of concept and that we really do have people who are anxious to have, like you said, this better than high speed broadband. We want the ultra high speed broadband. So OTO Fiber will be delivering that to residents and businesses within a, a pilot project area. Correct. And the contract, are you going to be working with one of the, the other ISPs in Maine that, that goes out of their way to try to work with communities or is a partner, is the contract with someone else? So we are um, signing a contract with a company that is an existing ISP in Maine. Um, we hope to be signing a contract. Sure. They've done a good job of making sure that everybody is kind of being considered in this contract, not just their best interests, but also the best interests of the, of the network and making sure that it is sustainable. That's, it's great. Uh, Maine has several ISPs that, that seem to have, not every state has those. Um, but uh, I think it's relevant just since you don't have to develop a billing system and things like that. You can rely on them for that sort of thing. Absolutely. And it's going to be, um, you know, kind of more on the, the Levert, Massachusetts model of this is um, OTO fiber powered by um, somebody else so that we can kind of leverage their existing marketing, um, et cetera, because we're an all volunteer board um, and, you know, trying to get any project to happen with an all volunteer board is so hard, but particularly if you then have to supervise paid employees and marketing and complaints and everything else. So yeah, we are definitely outsourcing. Um, we are outsourcing complaints and taking um, <laughs> compliments in-house. I'm kidding. That's a sustainable <laughs> way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, we want to make sure that we enter an agreement that is going to provide a good service to our residents. And by good service, we don't just mean that it's going to be ultra high speed and um, that it's on fiber that the municipalities own, but also that um, there's gonna be good customer service and um, that complaints are addressed um, quickly and that we have the best interests of our community in mind. What we're about to go over is um, your almost um, Homeric, um, uh, like the Odyssey um, effort. And so I'm curious, you mentioned the all-volunteer board. How many of them have been around since the beginning? Nine members of the board, so three from each entity. And um, probably 
six of us that have been um, kind of doing the long slog. Um, two of our uh, members, Bruce Segee and uh, Jeff Letourneau, Bruce represents the town or city of Old Town and uh, Jeff represents um, the University of Maine system, uh, were actually involved in the three ring binder project, getting that uh, funded way back. So they've been at this um, kind of trying to get fiber deployed for even longer than I have. Yeah, it was in the before times. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, 2007, 2008-ish, but, you know, in terms of this type of project, that is indeed um, dinosaur era. Were you able to hook into that that um, regional network then that would allow you to, to get on the internet at a lower cost? The three ring binder is meant to be that middle mile and it's all through, you know, there's a big loop in Northern Maine and then a smaller loop in um, Eastern Maine and then um, a bigger loop kind of in Southern Maine. And they all meet in um, Orenham area. So- um, Smart to build the town there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what we were thinking, how, how we were so prescient. But uh, actually, the University of Maine was placed in Orono because it is the geographic center of Maine. So um, that is also convenient for running fiber um, throughout the state. Also, the University of Maine has Network Maine, which Jeff Letourneau is the executive director of, and that runs the Maine Schools and Libraries Network. So that gets um, internet service to all um, schools and libraries in the state of Maine if they choose to participate. And I think most do. Mm -hmm. um, so he has a lot of experience. And uh, while we are not able to um, directly connect our residents to that um, three ring binder because it's designed to be middle mile, um, we are able to you know, kind of leverage the connections that people already have with that network and by people I mean ISPs in order to backhaul um, the the service that they need in order to light up our network. Sure. Let's go back in time. Um, let's go back to when <laughs> perhaps you were fooled into joining this effort <laughs> told that with a few years of effort, you'd be able to have the, the fastest networks in the nation. <laughs> so I started here in 2012, in July of 2012. And um, I came from a family boat building business. I have a mechanical engineering degree um, and we built fiberglass boats. And then I decided on making a career change and landed in uh, town management. And one of my very first council meetings was listening to um, a presentation about getting um, fiber deployed throughout the community. And that was a result of um, an effort that um, was spearheaded by the um, University of Maine and a group of interested Orono residents centered around gig.u. And gig.u was a national initiative and I believe there's still information out there um, about it, but the whole, the, the thrust behind that initiative was to get that ultra high speed broadband out into the communities that host research universities. And the idea was to, um, erase the difference in whether somebody was working on campus or they were working from home. So they would be able to maybe 
check in on experiments that are running on campus from their, from their home, and it would be no different than if they were sitting in their office. So the, we had issued out an RFP um, asking if anybody would be interested. We did have one company come forward and say, yes, we're very interested in doing this. This is, this is right up our alley. This is exactly what we want to do. Unfortunately, this was um, kind of early on in our process. And um, we did the kind of the press release and the big announcement and um, the publicity before a lot of the research had gone into, is this actually possible for this company to do um, as a private, private company that is making an investment in the community? It turns out it just didn't meet their business model. They have offered lots of support, um, whether it's talking to us about different types of models that they have seen uh, in terms of municipal networks that are successful or, um, you know, offering to be the um, provider of last resort if we were to get a network built, but they weren't able to, to build the network themselves. Mm-hmm. So when we understood that that wasn't going to work, we kind of pivoted and started trying to seek some um, outside funding in order to um, get the network up and going, or at least a pilot up and going. We applied for a Northern Border Regional Commission uh, grant. Uh, NBRC is how I will refer to it mostly. We applied for to that for a couple different rounds before we finally were awarded one in 2015. So we're already three years down my path on this um, journey, uh, and we're just barely getting started. In all this time, you have, uh, I'm going to presume, you know, some kind of, of DSL available that probably is not very fast, not very reliable, and a cable system that is probably pretty similar to that. Absolutely. So um, one of the uncomfortable positions that Orono finds itself in um, is that we are too big to be able to finance a full build out ourselves, but too small to interest private equity in um, investing. We have speeds of service that are too fast to be considered unserved, but too slow to be... um, Good for economic development, yeah. (laughs) Right. It's okay if all you want to do is stream Netflix, but suddenly when you need to start sending information upstream just as much as you're sending as you're bringing information downstream you get you get glitchy you don't have a symmetrical service and then you realize that wow i have 30 devices on my network right now and so does my neighbor and so does his neighbor and we're all using a cable a cable circuit and no wonder we're down to 10 down and one up um, but that's not considered unserved. When we applied for that NBRC grant, both communities put in um, a fair chunk of cash um, as well as some um, in-kind assets. And the University of Maine uh, system offered their existing fiber network as a, um, a match in-kind assets so that we would be able to actually overlash to to their network. For those who aren't familiar with how fiber goes up, 
you're literally tying your cable to their cable. And while that doesn't seem like there's a lot of value in it, make ready, which is literally making space on the poles for your fiber, costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time. So having somebody who's already in the space is very valuable. Yeah, when you say a lot of time, um, I was just speaking with someone in Connecticut that noted that um, uh, Frontier has taken more than a year to respond to some make ready efforts. So it's real, real time. Yeah, it is. It is real, real time. And each time a cable or a strand or something has to be moved from on a pole, whether it's up or down or wherever it is that you're going to be making space for you, you are paying per pole. And if you look out in your neighborhoods, there's a lot of poles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be it can be very costly. And for people who are wondering, well, wouldn't it be easier to go underground? The answer is no, <laughs> not in Maine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, frost is a real thing in Maine. And um, well, and frost is easy compared to granite, right? hundred <laughs> percent true. So when we had applied for that NBRC um Grant, we got that. Both communities had put up the the money. The University of Maine had put up um, their fiber network. And then we had applied for a Connect Maine grant. Connect Maine is the um, entity in Maine that is supposed to kind of redistribute the um, fees that are collected on your um, phone bills um, in order to deploy internet service um, to places that either don't have it. It's supposed to be for unserved or underserved areas. When we put in our application, we actually had the highest scoring application and we were awarded $100,000 from um, Connect Maine. And um, Time Warner at the time was our um, cable franchise in the community. And Fairpoint was the um, phone uh, service. Right. Previously Verizon and now Consolidated. Correct. Time Warner and and Fairpoint both objected to the award of a um, grant to OTO Fiber. We spoke with Fairpoint. Fairpoint withdrew their objection, but um, Time Warner prevailed. And um, ultimately, they were successful in getting the grant removed from the OTO Fiber. And they said that because there was some service, uh, Connect Maine couldn't provide funding to places that were just underserved when there were still unserved areas in Maine. That is something that we hear all over the place. I mean, this is a, the, the standard operating procedure for the cable companies is to um, try to make sure that as long as they can find a farm somewhere that doesn't have service, that they can make sure that towns that might be the hub of the entire region are left behind. And um, many of us really want to see every last farm connected, but um, we think that we need to blend and we need to make sure that the, the towns like yours are, um, are able to get some access before we filled in every last um, you know, area uh, in the, the most remote areas. Absolutely. And I think that there's um, an important distinction to be made between the different ways that you are delivering broadband. And there's probably room for many different solutions. There's satellite, there's um, fixed wireless, but fiber-based broadband is as future-proof as we can make an installation at this point. Um, you know, 
the equipment on either end to to light things up and carry the information um, that gets upgraded every so often, probably every five to seven years or so. But the the glass fiber in the middle that stays the same pretty much, and um, you can just continue to pass more and more information across the same physical um, infrastructure that's hanging on the, the poles. Not necessarily what you can say about copper. Mm-hmm. So we kind of picked ourselves up from losing that grant and we, we continued forward. At the time that we were um, doing this, we were being told that uh, what we really needed to have was a feasibility study done. Um, in the community to decide whether or not we truly needed this. Who was telling you that? It, it's more of like the the they were telling us <laughs> that, like that amorphous best practices um, feeling that you got every time you talk to um, somebody who had had already done a project or was working on a project, or consultants who were probably trying to sell you their service. Um, you heard you really should have a feasibility study and that feasibility study is going to tell you if people want the service and um, how much they'd be willing to pay for it and um, where it should go. Yeah, and I think there are merits to a feasibility study, but I also feel like it is the default answer when people aren't sure what else to do. Like, (laughs) what do we do? Let's do a feasibility study. You know, that was one of, that is exactly what it, what it was. We need to do a feasibility study. We need to have, we were thinking that what we were going to get out of it was a sales tool, so to speak, on convincing the, um, the councils of both communities that this was a good project to invest further funds in after we got our um, pilot project up and going. So the, the leadership of the communities is basically um, is kind of um, willing to put some skin in the game, but um, but recognizes it can't fund the whole thing and is trying to figure out just how much it really wants to put all of its eggs in this basket. Is that more or less what's happening? That's absolutely um, what's happening. Uh, we were able to do it with um, out using what's called uh, general fund taxpayer dollars. So you know, we weren't, we were not affecting the tax rate yet. You know, we needed to present a case as to how we were going to move forward. And was that going to involve general fund taxpayer dollars? And if it was, why was it a good reason to invest those funds? Yeah. I mean, as compared to a park or a bridge or, or various other things like that. I mean, city councils have uh, many priorities and one of the, their job is to figure out what people want. <laughs> our esteemed council chair, he's our chair now, um, says that there's always infinite requests for resources and finite resources to fill them. <laughs> right. And your job, I feel like, is often to evaluate those too, to make sure that the council, you know, if they hear from someone who says a monorail would be a great idea, I think it's often your job to to bring in the real cost analysis and benefits and, and that sort of thing as a town manager, as the assistant town manager, but the town manager, the same thing. Absolutely. So, you know, here I am wearing the hat of president of OTO Fiber um, saying, this is an absolute great thing for the community and um, waving the cheerleading flag. And then on the other hand, wearing my other my assistant town manager hat saying, all right, well, what is this really going to do for our community? And is this truly a good investment? Um, so that's why we ultimately, we did a, a feasibility study. 
we um, made a few mistakes when we, I think, went and did our feasibility study. One of them was um, choosing a national firm versus a more local um, Maine-based firm that might understand the facts on the, on the Maine ground a little bit better. You know, Maine doesn't have many local electric utilities, um, which makes it really hard because we don't own the poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, where even in our urban areas and the uh, town of Orono is considered um, part of the greater Bangor urbanized area, according to the census, uh, we're still not very dense. Uh, we have, you know, between the uh, city of Old Town and the town of Warno, there's probably one or two miles of neighborhoods where we have a hundred homes per mile. Um, and that's kind of like the baseline for most um, ISPs when they look at whether or not they're going to deploy fiber. Mm-hmm. We are a university town. Um, the city of Old Town is a little bit more um, industry, but most of our industry is um, brew pubs and restaurants. So not a lot of commercial activity um, to support a what they would call commercial deployment of fiber, where you charge more for a commercial entity versus a residential entity. Mm-hmm. So the feasibility study in some ways um, sets you back a little bit is what it sounded like. Well, the great thing about the feasibility study is that um, it really sparked a lot of discussion with the board. So, you know, we had started with this idea that we were going to hang some fiber and this was going to be dark fiber. And we were essentially just like we do for the sewer system, we were putting not pipes in the road, but fiber on the poles. And then um, it would be either the responsibility of um, the homeowner to connect to that fiber on the pole or pipe in the road, or it would be the responsibility of a service provider to do that. And that once we put up the infrastructure, the OTO fiber would just back off and move on to the next project. The feasibility study um, really kind of sparked a lot of conversations. This dark fiber was still the primary idea, but we started thinking a little bit more about what if we have to do a lit service and how would we how would we do that? And throughout throughout all of this, you're um, basically you're spending your nights just reading up on it and scheduling, you know, calls with uh, folks on the main broadband coalition. I mean, um, how are you kind of figuring this stuff out? Like I said, we're very fortunate to have Jeff Returno, um, mm-hmm. who is a huge broadband advocate and professional, <laughs> does this for a living, to help educate us. He would help, he would send us some resources for us to uh, research, to, to think about. We had some conversations with the um, consultant with the feasibility study about, you know, how other people are doing it and what other places we might want to look at and consider. Uh, in terms of models. By the, at the end of the feasibility study, we essentially got the answers that we knew were coming, or that yes, we do want it. Yes, people are willing to pay for it. And here are the places in general where we think that it should be deployed for the pilot project. Then we started working on the RFP for uh, designing the network. 
um, we had to refine where we decided to um, put the pilot project. So we had three miles in each community of what we called the core project and then um, expansion neighborhoods in both communities. We were so Pollyanna-ish that we could maybe get not only the core network built of that six miles, but also maybe additional um, neighborhood expansions with our existing funding. It took us a long time to write this RFP, maybe six to nine months of um, going at first very slowly working on it and then concentrated effort on let's finally get this thing done and pushed out the door and um, get some good response back from um, several entities and chose um, Tilson Technologies to do the design on our, um, on our pilot project. They did a great job, worked through it, and then we had to put forward our RFP for construction. Once again, volunteer board, the RFP for construction takes longer than it should have to write. We get that published and um, you know it's a long process. Once you've published an RFP, then you have to you kind of do a pre-bid meeting to get out any information that perhaps you didn't include. Then you have to have a period where people can submit written questions and then you respond. And then you have to have another period where people are working on their um, submission. And then finally the um, RFPs are due. So probably from the time you publish to the time the RFP is due is between six to eight weeks. So, you know, it just takes time. We eagerly await the due date for the RFP response for construction. And lo and behold, we had um, one response. <laughs> that is not desirable. <laughs> right. And this was in 2019, uh, very early 2019. The response had come from Tilson and they were going to be the general contractor for the project. And we looked at the, the price and we're like, we can't even afford to build the core project um, with this pricing. And um, talked to Tilson <laughs> thinking, well, is there a way for us to value engineer the, the project so that we still get a meaningful build out of it, but uh, we can actually build it with the funds that we have available. And um, they very generously offered to step aside and allow us to work directly with their subcontractor. Now, keep in mind, we're using federal funding for this. So we can't just call up the subcontractor and say, great, uh, Tilson said they'd back out. So we'd like to sign a contract with you. We have to reissue the RFP, wait the six weeks. We still get only one response back. This time it's directly from Icon Connections um, and we presto magico uh, with a little bit of tweaking, we can afford to do the project that we wanna do. Uh, we cannot do the um, expansion neighborhoods. Um, I should say that after we did the, um, the design RFP, part of that was actually putting in the pole license applications and um, authorizing the make ready. Um, because we were um, overlashing to University of Maine fiber in a significant um, way, we 
decided to do the make ready and design for um, the expansion neighborhoods and the core neighbor, the core network, even without knowing whether or not we could afford to build the expansion at this time. Here we are, it's now um, kind of getting into late 2019 and Icon starts construction in a snowstorm. <laughs> I remember um, driving down Main Street between my house and the, the town office and coming up on their um, truck kind of parked at the top of a hill and getting a phone call almost at the same time from the public works director saying, um, is this your contractor? Because they really need to work on their um, in-roadway setup <laughs> during a snowstorm because they're gonna, there's gonna be an accident. Um, but they did a great job working through Maine winters and by um, early 2020, we had um, fiber on the poles. And nothing went wrong in 2020, so the story ends pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing went on in 2020. It was super boring, um, but we twiddled our thumbs. <laughs> I, I wish that was the case. Yeah, so 2020 was a bit of a shock. Uh, everybody had their own uh, fires to fight within their own jobs that paid them um, their salaries. And uh, so there was a little bit of a, a drop in activity, um, even though we now had this, the fibers on the pole. And that was, uh, sorry to interrupt for a second, but that was, uh, was that a ReConnect grant? Can you remind me? NBRC, Northern Border. Oh, it was. Okay. So NBRC wasn't canceled then. Was this, how did that? Um, we got the grant in 2015 and we ended up having to extend it a couple of times in order to continue expending the funds um, because it did take us so long to get the construction done. Right. But it was the Connect Me grant that got that got canceled. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Connect Maine. Yes. So the NBRC was the initial $250,000. The communities put up another roughly $225,000 mm-hmm. and um, the University of Maine's fiber um value was about a hundred thousand. So, you know, we've got a $550,000, project um, hanging out there on the poles. Mm-hmm. When we started this whole process with the design, with everything else, we were envisioning this as a dark fiber network um, that somebody else was going to do the drops between um, house or business and the fiber on the pole. The finances just don't work out for that. Um, if you are going to own the fiber on the pole, then you probably need to own the fiber to the house as well, so that if you ever change the provider, you don't then have some sort of a um, conflict between the fiber on the pole and the fiber, the service to the house. Um, so you want to make sure that one entity um, has the rights to all of that. We didn't have the money to do that. And we were kind of scratching our heads, looking around, thinking about, well, how are we going to get um, drops funded and the next step moving forward on this um, fiber project? And that, and just for people's reference, I mean, each drop can be many hundreds of dollars when you include the electronics, the labor, the actual drop cable. It's non-trivial. We are estimating about $1,000 per premise. So whether that ends up being a little bit less for some place that's like kind of close to the road and a little bit more for a long driveway or something that's a little bit more complicated, 
um, it should all average out, hopefully a little bit less to $1,000 um, per premise. We're passing 450-ish premises with our pilot network. And um, while we weren't planning to do a, if you build it, they will come type of deployment where every single premise would get a drop, whether or not they ordered the service, you're still looking at a substantial investment for drops. Yeah, nearly doubling your budget. We Right, we had no money left. The town of Orono, uh, approached this, they were actually going out to, to bond for some other infrastructure projects. Council agreed to put up a $250,000, um, what's called a general obligation bond. So it's backed by the taxpayers of the town of Orono for fiber infrastructure in the town of Orono. And city of Old Town um, put forward a $100,000 revolving loan fund for um, infrastructure in the city of Old Town. At that point, we knew that we at least had a way to fund drops. So getting from the pole to the, the side of the house. And now what we needed was somebody to light up the network um, to provide service across this um, the fiber network. That was our most recent RFP, which once again, um, took a pretty long time to write. You know, RFPs are easy if you know exactly what widget you're asking for and how many. But when you're asking for um, people to kind of present a, a business case and that you don't necessarily know the right way to do it, um, it gets a little bit more difficult. So what we needed was a network operator. So essentially a caretaker for the, for the network and we needed um, an ISP to provide the service to the end user. Our preference was for the um, network operator and the ISP to be the same entity because that would reduce the work that OTO Fibers Volunteer Board would have to do. Right. But we didn't know. We didn't know if there were companies out there that would be willing to do both or if they would prefer to partner with somebody else to do one and then they would do the other. Um, and many um, municipal networks kind of around the country, this is where you see those um, municipal utility companies stepping in. So they're often the network operator um, and then they have a contract with an ISP. So the network operator owns the equipment at the on the customer's house and they are responsible if there's a, a fiber that's down or um, a physical break in the network. And then the ISP would be providing the service. And so there's a clear, there's kind of a clear break between the two. We didn't have a municipal utility. We couldn't do that on our own. So we wanted to have, we wanted to hire that function out too. And that brings us kind of to today is um, we put out that RFP, we got responses back. Um, in January, um, of course, this is now, uh, we got them back in late January, this is now late March, we're still kind of negotiating um, back and forth exactly how the partnership is going to work. But um, we're pretty confident that um, we'll be able to provide service over our pilot network and um, think we have a good plan to expand um, out beyond the pilot as well. Has the town considered the 
uh, tsunami of money from the federal government rushing toward you. Uh, that's some of which is earmarked for broadband and, and more of which could be used for broadband if they so chose. So we have definitely considered it. Um, you know, we are pretty aware of the role that OTO fiber um, really should play um, in that. We want to make sure that if there is a business case for having fiber broadband in the growth areas of the community, that we allow a private company to, to go where the business case drives them to go. We don't want to subsidize a private entity like that. But what we do want to do is we want to make sure that the places where there's only four houses um, on a street um, or there's um, perhaps underground service or there might be 10 or 12 houses clustered pretty close together, but they are five miles out of town that we work on getting the places where there isn't a business case. And with the new funding, like I said, we're in that uncomfortable place of underserved, not unserved. And so it all depends on how the rules are written. Well, and as I, as I understand it, um, there's... For a town like Old Town, it may be only hundreds of thousands of dollars, which for a town like Old Town only doesn't apply if you're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I think you'll have remarkable flexibility for um, for that. And then there will be other programs where they'll have stricter stricter rules for it. But am I understanding correctly then that um, that basically in Old Town and Orono, you may have a situation in which in the more uh, attractive areas, your partner may on their own dime expand the network. And then in parts of the area that, that they're not able to hit with their business plan, then you may, um, as OTO Fiber, you may expand that and then they would be leasing that from you. We are aware of that possibility, mm -hmm. um, at least, you know, nothing is written in stone and we don't know for sure that that's exactly what's going to happen. But um, when we developed our pilot, we hit the densest areas that we could because we were doing this as a proof of concept and we wanted to show this is what could happen. But we always knew from the beginning that um, there were going to be places in the community that were going to be harder to make a business case for, um, even for ETU fiber. Mm -hmm. And you're right, there is additional, there is money that is coming to the community um, as part of the American Rescue Act. Um, the town of Orono, I think it's roughly a million dollars, and the city of Old Town, I think, is roughly 710,000. But unfortunately, for broadband, those funds have to compete with other types of infrastructure projects that have been kind of waiting for funding for many, many years and perhaps even decades. <laughs> right. So you ask people, is it more important to get um, this street that continually floods rebuilt or is it more important to um, put broadband up? It's a conversation and a discussion. And let me just tell you, communities can spend a million dollars on very high priority uh, infrastructure very quickly because there's a lot of things that have been underfunded for many, many years. Yes. And, and this is why local politics are important. So people who go out and they vote based only on national politics and what they see on TV news, they're missing an opportunity to make sure that these, these local questions are resolved the way they would like to. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that Maine hardscrabble farmers and uh, fishermen and everybody prides themselves on is that we are a self-reliant community and mm -hmm. Maine has a very strong municipal government and a very weak county government. And that is 
very different in other other states. And partnering together to try and get things that we need, like this broadband network, we're not big enough to do it by ourselves, but together we might be able to make it work, uh, I think is really important. We don't want to necessarily call it local politics because politics just has a <laughs> negative connotation to it. We want to say that the politics are left at the door and what's best for the community is um, what's considered in the council chambers. That's important to main communities. Good. And I um, I think the, the New England communities in, in Maine uh, have that robust tradition that um, that does result more often in people feeling heard, I think, even if they don't get their way. So it's important. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's I'm, I'm I just think that um, one of the reasons I like to talk to, to people like you and projects like this is to understand that, you know, in five or 10 years when everyone has this high quality network and, um, and people look back and they just take it for granted um, that there's at least a record of the trials and tribulations you've gone through to make it happen. Uh, and I really value that. Well, it's like birthing an elephant, you know, it is <laughs> painful and it takes a long time to kind of first grow the elephant and then get it out there. But once you are through and on the other side, I think we'll really have something that, um, kind of makes the community stand out and um, pleased with the end result. Excellent. That was Christopher talking with Bell Ryder. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle's at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 453 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>